Welcome to Museum of London Docklands. Um, we're really delighted today to have Andrew Flynn, who's a senior lecturer in archival studies and oral history in the Department of Information Studies at University College London, um, talking to us here. We're also really pleased to have the subject matter of hidden histories and community history. It's something the Museum of London's been engaged with since the 1980s, but obviously, because we're a major institution, we can only ever be a part of that picture. And sometimes the community history and and hidden history is reacting against us. So we, we know we have a complex role in this area. Um, Museum of London Docklands, where we are today, it very much came out of community history roots. We have a fabulous collection of port and river histories. Um, those are oral history interviews with dockers and people who worked in the associated industries around the docks. And, that, and the idea for this place very much came out of a community drive to need to recognize the docks before they went to record them, to salvage the importance of that history. So we feel it very strongly here, and but we know that as a major institution, we can't ever be the whole picture in terms of community history. So I'm really interested, I'm really delighted to have Andrew Flynn here today, and I hope you enjoy it. Um, ooh, thank you uh, very much for that. It does sound a bit feedbacky. I'm not sure that's me. Um, seems to be something else going on. Anyway, um, I'm sure somebody will sort it out. That sounds better. So, good afternoon. It's a great pleasure to be invited to give this last time uh, lunchtime lecture on tour, um, especially in the Museum of London Docklands. Much of my talk um, will examine the historic and ongoing challenges that um, orthodox and dominant narratives I've often found expression in museums um, and my talk will often uh, will focus on some of the sort of challenges to those those narratives narratives that are often excluded uh, many citizens of this city on the basis of say their their class or their race their faith their gender or their sexual orientation however I do think as I was just as we were just chatting before, it's really important to acknowledge that institutionally and individually, some of our museums and those working in them have also made great strides in seeking to tell those previously excluded stories. And in many ways, the Museum of London and the Museum of London Docklands have been at the forefront uh, of those developments, and, and you know, we should recognise that before we go on. In thinking about the recent public conflicts around the, uh, the funeral of Margaret Thatcher, I was reminded about a discussion in Patrick Wright's book, in the 1980s book, uh, on living in an old country, about how Michael Foote's attendance at the 1981 Remembrance Day service was read both as a kind of sort of, as an insult, but also as a sort of challenge to the kind of the, tra the trappings of tradition and uh, militarism and uniform and a kind of sort of patriotic respect. And whether deliberate or not, Foote's appearance in, whether it was a donkey jacket or not, um, seemed to be representing another tradition. It, it was seemed as uh, expressing solidarity with all those who died and, and challenging the glorification of war and the nation, and, and as hence was incredibly con controversial. Whether he meant it in that way is, is of course, not necessarily uh, easy to understand or to, to find out. The, th the, the protests around Margaret Thatcher's funeral gave me a, a similar sense of, uh, of uh, 
uh, thinking about what was going on here. Um, if she'd been buried, buried in a, in a low-key fashion, I'm not saying that her legacy would not have been discussed and debated and passionately challenged. I'm sure it would have done. But the overt attempts to give it almost a, a state funeral with the attendant pomp and ceremony, with the, the, the presence of the army and the state to cement a kind of sort of sense of a political legacy as uncontroversial and unchallengeable, made it almost inevitable, I think, that others responded with public actions of challenge and contestation. It was, it was almost as there was a kind of, sort of inevitability that if you, if you set up such a great big public display of a, of a, of a history and a tradition, and you're, you're trying to say certain things about that, then people will contest that. They will protest. And so the, all the sort of questions about whether that was respectful, I think, miss the point about the, the point that something had been set up, an inevitable consequence had been set up about taking that funeral in a particular way, in the same way as uh, the, the narratives of history and tradition uh, as, as exemplified through things like uh, remembrance memories also provoke people to, to behave and react in different ways. So my talk today will be addressing those local and community histories which seek to make an intervention into local and national historical narratives and to challenge those narratives. So I'm not really talking about um, local uh, history uh, initiatives that are kind of, um, that are, uh, are more or less um, exercises in, in, in looking at the past in a way of, uh, of a, as a sort of leisure activity, as a pleasure activity. Um, I think those are incredibly important, and I think actually that they're much more meaningful than to be dis dismissed in any way as, as, as leisure activities. I think that there's something very interesting and serious going on there. So I'm not dismissing those in any way, but what I'm really going to be talking about today is those ones that have a much more, I'd say, a political edge to them, that they are actually trying to contest a history that they're trying to assert a presence of some sort or other. Local history activity in, in London and in the UK is very widespread and has a, a long and honourable tradition. Certainly historical activities, local historical activities, in an organised fashion have been going back since the 16th or 17th century. Um, and much of the early uh, focus was, was on sort of topography and, and maps, and hence I put a picture up of a, of a map from the from this 16th century. The real explosion, however, was in the 19th century, when local history and antiquity societies sprang up all across London um, and the UK. For instance, uh, the London and Middlesex Archaeological Society was formed in 1855. The London Ty Typographical Society was formed in 1880. Typically, these local historical activities were the preserve of what we might call, think of as local elites, including the church, the clergy and the church. They took a wide range of activities and interests. Broadly, they encompassed anything that the, the individuals themselves were interested in. Um, but they generally included uh, uh, maps, archaeology, the collection of objects and documents. And their focus tended to be on two, two areas. One, on the distant past, on, on ancient artifacts and, and, uh, and ancient history of the, of the immediate area, but also on the history of land ownership, churches, and other significant buildings. 
And this kind of tradition heavily influenced the early editions of the Victorian history, histories of the counties of England that many of you may have come across. The red doesn't really work on these slides, my friend. A new local history, however, and what we might call community history, emerged in the 20th century, particularly after the Second World War, often linked to the, uh, to the work of the Workers' Education Association and adult ed education classes being run out of university extramural departments. The numbers of local history groups and those involved in local history research grew significantly uh, after 1945 and became increasingly popular with all sections of society. Many newly formed groups often included a wider, wider range of social backgrounds and began to study different areas of history. In particular, they began to study recent history, 20th century history, modern industrial history. It is this post-war uh, flourishing of local history and community history that I'm going to discuss most pertinently this afternoon, particularly, as I say, those ones who are most politically engaged. Um, and we're either seeking to make one an intervention in uh, local or national historical narratives. They were wishing to kind of sort of change those historical narratives or, or intervene into those historical narratives and, uh, and say something different. Um, and secondly, they were often interested in establishing a physical space. They wanted to create somewhere where uh, that history was to be, could be found, could be represented, could be accessed. And I'm going to talk about both those, those, those uh, themes, about an intervention and the creation of a physical space. Now, although politically inspired uh, community history endeavors could be found uh, during in the pre-war period, for instance, Marx Memorial Library was established in 1833, in 1933, not 1833. Um, so most, for the most part, this is a kind of sort of post-war phenomenon. Particularly, you find from the 1950s onwards, as Western societies were challenged by uh, sort of equality and civil rights movements, and the influence of um, historians associated with the left, particularly the Communist Party and the New Left, meant we saw an emergence of a new range of historical subjects, such as new social history, labor and working class history, women's history, gay history, black history. And these, along with the emergence of oral history, encouraged an approach to historical research and dissemination in both universities and outside amongst local researchers, which could be best termed as either history from below or later as identity histories. In some cases, these new studies were at, at a national level. But in fact, the logic of such history from below studies often suggested a local focus as the best way to understand and capture those previously hidden lives. In particular, oral history, and oral history is an absolutely crucial component of most of these uh, local and community history initiatives, Oral history lent itself to a local and regional approach about collecting stories of people from within a particular community or area to better understand that community. Now, these three quotations, if they weren't readied out by the speaker, um, would, would introduce, I think, to, to three 
key elements of, of these, uh, these histories. I'm not saying that everything about uh, community histories is, is located within these quotes, but they do represent three key areas. So firstly, we have Paul Thompson, um, who's the one on the, the, far, the far left, um, a long quote from uh, a book called The Voice of the Past, a very sort of important and classic book about, about oral history, in which what he's suggesting is that um, the, the adoption of new sources, particularly oral history, transforms history itself transforms what history is about, transforms the writing of history, and talks about a sort of ultimate democratization of history. So oral history for Thompson was allowing a complete transformation of the way history was written and what its subject matter was. The next quote um, is from the, uh, from the website of the Waltham Forest Oral History Workshop, um, which represents a particular kind of strand within, within, within community histories in terms of the sense in which the voice, the, the experience uh, of individual people was important um, and in of itself was something significant that elsewhere might not be captured, might not be, uh, might not be a part of the historical process or of the historical record. And that by capturing and, and, and being willing to be recorded and to be interviewed, you were participating in a process by which you could become part of the historical record. And finally, in a quote from, from Stuart Hall at the bottom there, which is already kind of, I've already sort of addressed this as the kind of issue that, that this is seen as being a process in which you are making an intervention, which you are becoming a part of an area which is already contested. That is something that it's a, it, this isn't an unchallenged area, that you are, you are making a, uh, you're doing history in order to challenge some existing stories or narratives that are, that are out there. Oral history, as I said, I think is really crucial in, in all this, um, and not least because, as, a, as, a, as an approach to, to collecting uh, understanding about local history, about local, uh, local communities, it's a really... Um, uh, easy and, and direct approach, but it also foregrounds the voice. In its orality, although many of us access oral history through the transcript, if we, if we think about the voice and if we think about uh, the, the orality of oral history, um, what we find is there's a very, very immediate access to notions of things, uh, things about class, and of course about gender, and perhaps even about race and nationality, because once you hear the voice, there are all sorts of sort of connotations that, that go with that voice that you immediately pick up, which are perhaps easier to hide and to marginalize when you're only looking at text. So people, people when they speak in their own voices, also tell us all sorts of things about, about who they are and what their backgrounds are just by, by speaking. So oral history makes, makes all those kinds of issues much harder to ignore and dismiss. Just one final slide before I then go on to actually look at some examples of, of some community histories. One important um, part of the first flourishing of the oral history movement and, and the community history movement was the sense in which there was a collaboration between 
historians in universities and historians outside. And whether we call historians in universities academic historians or professional historians and non-professional or amateur, there's all sorts of, kind of connotations in these words. But the period of the 1960s, 70s and 80s saw a period in time where there was a, lots of an attempts to collaborate with local history groups and to bring together academics and local history researchers in order to produce to produce histories that were that were beneficial that were that, that had some sort of synthesis from both sides that brought in the kind of sort of the expertise and the local knowledge and perhaps the political activism of uh, people in the local history groups with the kind of sort of the academic experience of, of the historians and some of this found its uh, I suppose its most famous uh, f uh, forum or uh, um, appearance in the history workshop movement. Um, and the history workshop movement, I think, um, had two defining sort of uh, qualities in, in, in its early years in terms of how it, how it related to local history and the importance of local history. Firstly, it said that history was important, that hi history mattered that history had a, uh, um, uh, an ability to support and to challenge and to change uh, understandings in society, and that if you could change, and un change understandings of society, you could also motivate changes and transformations in society itself. So, thus, history was always too important to be left to the professional historians, or in Samuel's quotes halfway down, that history should never be the prerogative of the historian, that it's a work of uh, a thousand hands, that more people are involved than just the person that, that ultimately writes the book. So there was a sense of history is important, but there was also a sense that it should be a collaborative social activity. So that's one of the things about that Samuel quote. And one of the, one of the most famous um, uh, slogans of that time was, um, dig where you stand which came from a, uh, a Swedish uh, novelist and, and, and his historical writer called Sven Lindquist, um, who wrote towards the end of the 1970s and was published both in Swedish and English, about the need to understand where, you're, where you are, where you're coming from, by understanding your, the history of the place in which you are. So the notion of digging was partly... Uh, a notion of kind of archaeology. It was taken on by archaeologists, but it was more about digging in, digging into the history, digging into your roots, into the past, and having a sense of that. But what he also was, was minded of, and he was talking about factory workers, that factory workers would have a better understanding of where they were um, and their relationships with their employers and their, their historic conditions if they understood the history. And he was saying that, that, they were, that, that this was entirely possible and should be done, but actually... You know, historical research requires techniques, it requires skills, it requires expertise. And what he was offering, and what the Dig Where You Stand was, was offering a kind of sort of textbook approach to doing local historical research. I'm going to return to the idea of Dig Where You Stand because that, that's taken uh, something that I'm now working on with other colleagues at UCL. So this, this slogan and this approach was key to uh, a lot of, uh, of the work in this period, about collaboration, about working together. However, it didn't last. Um, as I'll, I'll say a little bit in a few minutes, in sometime in the 1980s and 1990s, the, 
the close collaboration or attempts at close collaboration between people working within the universities on, on local history or on community history and those working outside universities, the, the, those contacts became much less. Um, there was a kind of sort of parting of the ways and there were, there were numerous reasons for that. Some of them kind of sort of to do with uh, differences over historical approach, some to do with the, the, the vagaries of funding and where funding was pushing both local history groups and uh, academic uh, historians, but there was, I think, a, a, a shame that there was this split that happened. This this moment ends, in a sense. So I'm going to talk briefly, or introduce you to to four different uh, types of uh, four different examples of uh, community or independent and community history uh, initiatives, all of which are long-standing, uh, all of which probably have a, a lineage going back 30 or 40 years. So I'm not necessarily talking about recent ones here, I'm talking about kind of ones that have got a kind of sort of history in their lineage. Um, and I'm going to talk, to the, the, they give different examples of things. So I'm going to talk about one that, sh that shows how uh, the use of history is a kind of sort of usable tool, uh, one that's, that's talking about kind of sort of protection and uh, remembrance during a period of change, a third one which is about creating places both of safety, safe spaces, and, but also of kind of affirmation of presence, and finally one that's sort of talking about challenging absence. And they're all, to a certain extent, a local example. So you, you, you will have undoubtedly heard, visited, seen these, these, these places. Um, this one actually is, is a place that has a, uh, has a, has a movable um, institution. So this is, the, uh, this is the People's History Museum, as is um, now in, um, in Manchester, but was the National Museum of Labour History in, in Limehouse. And the, uh, the drawing is the, is the Limehouse Museum. The, the, picture, the top right picture is the museum, which is the version of it that I worked at for 10 years in Manchester. Um, and then the bottom are the, its, its new premises, um, uh, not far away from, from, from the, the building up there. The National Museum of Labour History is very much, or was very much, um, an institution that was thought of and designed to be an institution that was about... Um, telling a history, a history that was for education, that was for um, consciousness raising, in, in, in the words of, of, of those, those who were involved in it. It was not about uh, a professional, objective, uh, neutral study of working class or, or, or labour history. It was not a mausoleum, in, in, in the words of, of, of some, some people at the time. It was very much an attempt to create an institution that told histories that would help to educate, to inform uh, struggle uh, and, and further, um, further political activity. Um, it was organised and, and based on collections by local uh, activists and, and long-time members of, of the Communist, Communist Party and Labour Party who felt that what they were trying to do was create something that would come, become a resource for, uh, for working people. The emphasis was on displaying materials and making them available rather than concerns about their long-term preservation. And the, as a result, the museum was 
um, you know, a kind of center of a lot of kind of ongoing activity, a lot of uh, uh, publications, a lot of um, uh, plays were produced, books were published um, within the museum, but it was always a kind of um, beset by continual financial worries, concerns over space, and a sort of ongoing con controversy about its professionalism and its political identity, um, and these kind of debates have been well do documented over the years. The result was um, in the mid-80s that uh, after being opened since in, in Limehouse since the, the mid-70s, in, in the mid-80s, um, a, a change in the political concept in the, in the politics of Tower Hamlets um, and the, 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 the Liberals assuming uh, control of Tower Hamlets Council at that time meant that Limehouse closed down, the museum closed down, and it moved up, up into Manchester. Um, and it became a much more professionally uh, organized and focused uh, museum at that point. Um, and a, a lot of the kind of sort of debates about whether it could still be seen as this kind of independent community-based organization with a thrust towards political education, um, you know, continue in, in a sense to this day, but um, were very much uh, a feature of the sort of all the 10 years that I worked there from 1990 to 2000. Now the museum, I would say, is not at all really about labor or, um, or, or really even working class struggle. It's, it's a museum about the struggle for equality and democracy. So that, that sense of, of, of looking at a, at, a, at a museum that was once very much based in a particular idea of a community of organized labor is now telling a story of a much broader story of, of the struggle for equality and democracy but no longer focusing on, on sort of organized working class struggles. Less than one mile away from here um, is the, uh, or I think it still is independent, is it? Let's try to check on that. Um, is the Island History Trust, which for uh, 30 years or more um, was collecting materials um, relating to the, this, this area, in fact, the, the, Isle, the Isle of Dogs. Um, and the person that was responsible, Eve Hostetler, um, came from that heart of that oral history, history movement. She'd been uh, a supervisor at university, had been Paul Thompson, and she'd been written reg regularly for History Workshop and edited History Workshop Journal in its early years. And she came to the Isle of Dogs to, um, with a, with a, and immediately got sort of got a sense of the, the, the of the need to, to do something urgently. She spoke about how it became apparent that physically the environment was going to be concreted over, as it were, the docks were going to be completely altered, and so more and more of the physical representation of life as it had been and had been had been lived was going to disappear. So the recording of it, and so, was very important. There was a kind of sense in the, which was an urgency in, in that period, in the, in the early 80s, in this period of great change that many of you may have memories of, that, that there was a need to, to capture those stories before those stories and those, those histories were kind of sort of dis would disappear within a kind of, sort of process of, of severe and, and rapid industrial and uh, demographic change. So community histories 
often play a role or become started in these kinds of circumstances when an area is going through significant social change. And that social change may, re re may uh, reflect a sort of industrial change, it may reflect a uh, demographic change, it may reflect a um, the kind of particular occupations, the, the, the gentrification of, a, of an area. And those moments of change can seem to seem, uh, in a sense, both, both positive and negative, but they can also inspire um, these moments of sort of intense community activity around, around a history and attempt, an attempt to use those histories in some, some ways as, as ways of kind of sort of protecting uh, a community against change. Um, it can be quite negative in, in, in some senses in that way, but also can be kind of a positive force for seeking to kind of affect change. They're trying to use kind of sort of history and heritage as ways of motivating people about uh, around particular ideas and campaigns. And certainly, um, that was those were some of the ideas that, that Eve talked about. Now, you'll guess that as I'm giving quite kind of sort of um, quick overviews of, of these different institutions. There's a lot more that could be said of, of the different kind of perspectives, but I'm just sort of taking one element with, with, with each of these. So in, in the case of the Black Cultural Archives in, uh, in Brixton, um, the, the, the idea I want to, to express here is the idea of, of the creation of a space. Um, the creation of a, of a, of a place which, which both kind of acts as a, sometimes in the language it's called a safe space, a space in which people can interact, where, uh, you know, kind of away from uh, a world that might be otherwise sometimes kind of antagonistic or hostile. But also an element of, of, of creating a, a, a monument, um, a monument to presence, uh, something that, that they cannot be denied, that can't be um, easily uh, shrugged off or ignored. So, I think you get both of these elements in, in, in the history of uh, the Black uh, Cultural Archives, both as this creation of a place where people could meet, where they could talk, where they could organize. Um, Stephen Small wrote uh, in the late 1990s about the importance of, of such uh, places in, in the black community when he wrote that schools, cultural centers, bookshops, and museums. These are safe spaces in which we can decide our priorities and work towards them without hindrance by those hostile to our goals or even from those with good intentions who don't share our priorities. So that's one aspect of this of sort of the creation of a place, the space, as this safe space. But there's also a sense in which the physicality of, of it can also be a hugely symbolic importance in representing the presence of the community and its history. So Len Garrison, who was one of the uh, core founding figures of the uh, Black Cultural Archives, returned from New York in the, in the early 1980s, having visited an institution called the Schomburg Center for Research and Black Culture, determined to found Britain's own permanent monument to the heritage of people of, black, of African and Caribbean descent. And the word monument appears several times in his poetry um, and is also... Um, you know, as part of the the the, uh, the, the charity, the overall charity that, that supports the uh, the Black Cultural Archives, the African People's Historical Monument Foundation. And 30 years on, the BCA, from from that kind of sort of incept, moment of inception, the BCA is uh, nearing that sort of moment where they will open 
uh, a large-scale permanent archive and museum center um, costing over six million pounds and representing a physical monument to the now uh, you know, undeniable, therefore, contribution of peoples of African and Caribbean descent to London and Britain's history. And that one of the workers in the, uh, in the archive expressed, I think, it quite well, the kind of sort of importance of this, when she, she said, the building is a monument, and I know it sounds quite sort of staid, and you sort of think about this big monolith, but I tend to think that the very, that, of that idea, very much in the way of I think of an archive being bigger than just pieces of paper in a box. The building will be a monument, and, an act, and the act of participating in the activity in the building is an act of remembrance and an act of reverence, really. So it's a sense of remembrance, of reverence, of something physical uh, being undeniable in terms of the presence there. So my final uh, brief example is um, Eastside Community Heritage, um, and particularly their um, pop-up People's Museum and Gallery of Newham, which existed on uh, Stratford High Street. Um, last uh, summer during the Olympics. Eastside were uh, established in uh, the early 1990s. So again, have a kind of sort of heritage going back now 20 years. Um, and their story goes back to a kind of sort of being motivated by, by conflict over, you know, kind of the representation of um, history generally, but particularly of working class history and working class heritage in, in Newham at, at that particular time. And so that they, they were formed in this kind of way of, of a, uh, a sense of trying to respond to what they perceived to be a kind of sort of an absence and a, and a closing down. And they, in the last sort of 20 years or so, they've been collecting oral histories which seek to go beyond the kind of sort of stereotypes of the East End um, and to kind of sort of dig into kind of sort of diversity and the, and the sort of histories of the area and broadening it out beyond Newham and to, to, cover, to cover the whole of East London. The um, pop-up museum was, was quite interesting in that, um, it, you know, it took a, took a shop front, I think, at the Labour Party uh, offices, I think, on, on Stratford High Street, and for three months just had a kind of very small museum um, of displays about the local history of that period. Don't think it was in a position to get many uh, visitors from the Olympic site because you know you were herded in and, and herded out, but apparently got got, got quite a, a good uh, local uh, turnover and people being really kind of engaged and excited with having their history on their doorstep and being represented. And it's a sense of, again this, this challenge to an absence and of, of telling a story. I'm running out of time, but I did want to just uh, finish and conclude with, 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 with some thoughts on, on how this um, is not unchallenged. So, um, community history and oral history in particular has, um, has been seen as, as being, well, that's the best way of putting it, less than, less, less than rigorous. So we have, we have AJP Taylor famously um, referring to oral history as old men drooling about their youth. Um, and Barbara Tuckman um, thinking, you know, asking what, the, what we thought we were doing. We were recording all this trivia of appalling proportions. All sorts of people, and by she means people, she just means people, um, being op invited to merely open their mouths and ramble, ramble effortlessly and endlessly into a tape recorder. So the criticisms were, were, were quite, um, quite vehement about the kind of lack of well, what's being recorded, what's, what's the rigor of it. 
And these, these criticisms didn't only come from kind of sort of traditional historians, they also came um, um, from the left as well. So from within uh, the history workshop movement, there were, there were some, some people who, who thought that this kind of sort of, this notion which I talked about right at the beginning, about the importance of every voice, about recording everybody's stories, uh, about community histories being kind of sort of, you know, autobiographical. This is the, the bottom quote from, from Jerry Wright where he talks about this kind of autobiographical mode. Were with a point of a great deal of kind of sort of conflict uh, and, and one, of those, one of those issues which I said earlier sort of in a sense promoted the kind of the separating and I think the, the, the rather sad separating. So this wasn't the only reason that I said there were reasons about university funding and public funding that also kind of pushed, pushed these, these two groups apart. But this sense in which Community historians and local historians were being accused by academic historians of being not rigorous enough and not theoretical enough. And on the other hand, um, as, uh, as, as people have described at the time, sort of the, the community historians, local historians, just kept going back and said, well, you're just all too theoretical. You're just, you know, you know you're, not, you're not dealing with real, the real world and real history. In a sense, kind of should have pushed these, 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 two, these two, uh, two groups of historians apart in a way that I think was... That, was quite damaging and sad. So, brings me on to kind of where we conclude, is that there are attempts now, latterly, to try, and, and of course the connections have always been con continuous. Individual historians have continued to work inside and outside the universities on these things. But there are, there, are, there are attempts now to try and sort of recreate some of those connections and to put these things together. So there's a project that is funded um, by the Arts and Humanities Research Council and by the HLF in a sort of uh, collaboration to bring together groups of university researchers with lots of local history um, groups funded by HLF. Um, and our, our group at UCL, which is the one I lead, is called Dig Where We Stand rather than Dig Where You Stand. You know what we've done there? And we're now into continuing to dig. At some point, I think we'll get to stopping digging. Um, and Really what it's about is trying to bring together um, groups of academics. There are, there are a number of us, about 12 of us in different areas with a range of different community groups um, who are doing different types. So we're, effectively, we're working with about 15 or 16 different groups. Um, and I've got a couple of slides here of, of the different groups. And the kind of work that they're doing is, is, is kind of, they're, they're, they're trying to engage with, with uh, history, they're trying to engage with local community history for different purposes. So uh, Mental Fight Club is trying to look at kind of sort of local history in terms of how it might, um, uh, how a kind of engagement in history might support people's sense of well-being and recovery through, through mental health difficulties. The Grove Park community one is looking at, again, sort of anti-gentrification uh, campaigns and how they might be supported by um, looking at the, at the history of the railway children in this case. And we've got uh, uh, projects that are looking at kind of sort of the sort of diversity of society, looking at kind of sort of black history in Calling Town or looking at kind of sort of uh, Brazilian populations in, in, in South London. And what we're doing is working with them mostly it's about kind of offering them sort of skills and expertise training, but in some cases it's about helping to develop their ideas, to work with them so that we, that we end up doing something more akin to sort of co-creation of, of some of this research. But the impetus and the incentive and the motivations come from them. So my conclusions, um, 
about where we are now. I, just, I think there are, there are kind of sort of four, four factors that I think at the end that I have to, I, want, I would want people to take away. But firstly, I think that the idea about recovery and hidden histories is, is in itself sometimes enough. It is important sometimes to, to recover those, those issues. So these arguments about, well, is it rigorous enough? Are we asking all the right questions? Sometimes the starting point is to recover, is to talk about the histories that, that aren't present in our, in our other narratives. Secondly, we shouldn't presume that local history activities lack rigor. They often don't. They're, they're often extremely skilled and expert, expert people are involved in there. People who might have had all sorts of other different experiences, who might work in libraries and museums, might work in archives, that have all sorts of expertise that they bring to this material. So the idea that something is, 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 is lacking rigour or bad history because it's outside the university is, is one that I reject as well. There is question, I think, about what the impact of, of the whole of this sector basically being funded by the HLF. Um, without HLF funding, I don't know how these, these things specifically sustain themselves. And there is questions that I'm asking people, because I'm doing a whole sort of uh, research project at the moment on, on kind of sort of labour and working class libraries and museums, is to what extent the HLF funding it's, it's, it acts in contradiction to some of their, their more radical aims, and uh, that's an interesting question. And finally, I think there is a place for trying to restart this uh, area of collaboration, about trying to break down the walls between universities and those who are working in historical activities outside, those who are working in any kind of activity, uh, intellectual knowledge production activity outside the university, trying to sort of you know, lower the barriers to collaboration and cooperation. And that the, the model of history workshop and oral history sort of 20 years ago seems to me to offer something that was really important, and perhaps it didn't necessarily uh, all work out or end uh, in, in harmony, but there's, there's something there that we, we can rec recreate. And so that's why I leave um, people with the words of, of Eve Hostetler in an interview that I did with her a few years ago about what she felt that she brought to this process, and she thought she did bring things. She brought research skills, interviewing skills, but she also recognised that, you, that you, in order to do this, you needed a modesty of approach. You know a sort of, you tell us what happened here, a listening, a total respect for people, whoever they were and whatever they had to say. Paying attention to their ideas about what we might do or where we might go from there here, it's quite complex, isn't it? But it's that kind of thing. It's an awareness, it's a listening. You absolutely have to be, I would say, fundamentally sympathetic to the community you plan to become a part of. Thank you. I've got two questions. Okay. <laughs> the first is, how did you identify and collaborate with the projects you've just mentioned at the end? Was, did they already exist, or did they come into being um, 
from prompting from the university. Which way round was it? Uh, they, they already exist, and they certainly didn't come in um, from prompting from the university. So they're, they're all groups. The way this project works is that there are groups with HLF funding, and then the HLF uh, particular stream of, of funding was called All Our Stories. Um, then they're put in touch with us, and if they are interested in working, and then we, we, we had some conversations, then if they thought there was something that uh, was a benefit to them, then we'd set up the, the partnership with them. But they're, they, they're, they were established first, and their projects were established and funded by the HLF first, and then, so that, that made it, it makes it quite difficult in some ways, because um, the projects are already kind of still ongoing. But it's very much a, um, the impetus is very much from the, the community groups rather than from us. My second question is, if you want to tell the hidden histories of communities that through town, the development of towns and slum clearances and so on have basically resulted in a diaspora within the white British working class community. Um, how do you go about telling those stories when those communities are scattered? I think that one of the ways that that, that one of the ways um, is, is a question of, of, of trying to, so that's what, you know, the, in, in a sense, what uh, even the Island History Trust, I think, were, were trying to do, that they were trying to capture those stories before those communities were dispersed. But also one of the things about technology um, is that it has offered uh, potential for doing that. So if you look at a site like um, one of the most um, uh, successful in, in this area, it's called a site called My Brighton and Hove, um, which is a, a local history uh, uh, online site which people can contribute to. Um, and it's, it's about the history of Brighton, about the history of Brighton and Hove. But it attracts people from all over the world to contribute to it. People who have got some, either in their lifetime or in their, in, in their family's lifetimes, connections to Brighton and materials about Brighton. So there is, there is possibilities to use technology to reconnect uh, that, that kind of sort of diverse, uh, diasporic kind of sort of communities that have been kind of atomized by, by change. The, the dilemma there is that a lot of those communities are elderly and a lot of elderly don't they do and they don't. I mean, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you have to have to uh, take into account sort of digital divides amongst amongst generations. But actually, you know, the the Silver Surfer and the family history research researchers do show that you know quite a lot of of, uh, of older people, you know, are getting gri to grips with a kind of quite quite complex research online research techniques and using these kinds of sites. And it, it's not too much of a, a, a shift from the family history site to the community and local history site. So, yeah, I agree, but it, it, there's also kind of, you know, there's, there's a different element to it as well. Um, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for, but thank you very much to Andrew and to you, Sylvia.